0: I'm to break mm-hmm. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, my name is Danny Anderson, and I'm your host. And today, we return to comics. This is uh, one of our kind of recurring topics we talk about periodically on this show, and today's no different. Um, A little bit different, though, because we are talking about an academic scholarly collection about the Marvel Universe. It's called Theology and the Marvel Universe, edited by Gregory Stevenson, who is my guest today. Um, And I'm kind of co-hosting this one with uh, Will Rose. Uh, Will. Uh, Those of you who are involved in Theocon, all that stuff, probably already know Will. But Will, why don't you introduce yourself um, to uh, to folks who might not
1: know you and what you're about? Great. Thanks, Danny. I, I of course, listen to your podcast, so it's great to be on it. And yeah, we met at Theocon last fall and... We're able to play Dungeons and Dragons together and, <laughs> and uh, geek nerding and, and geek dating and going around the circle sharing what we're geeking out on and will, all those that, things.
0: Will, you have like the greatest like icebreakers um, in history. Uh, if you ever need like a, a classroom icebreaker, <laughs> uh, contact Will Rose. He's, he's the master of this stuff.
1: Well, that's, that's my origin story, right? So I'm a parish pastor, former youth pastor, uh, former camp counselor. Uh, so, so yeah, I've been trained in the arts of icebreaking and trying to get uh, teenage youth to talk and, and mingle with one another. And um, Yeah, so I'm, I'm Will Rose. I'm the parish pastor at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I've been here about uh, eight years. I'm a uh, lifelong comic book geek and Star Wars fan and— um yeah it was it was it's funny that we're talking about theology in the Marvel universe because I really feel like the, the Marvel movies really launched what I've done with my God loves geeks ministry or book studies or moderating panels because it was um, in my church in South Carolina when these movies started emerging I was already reading the comic books but we found ourselves in the narthex of the church with similar geeks like myself going, what did you think about the movie? Or what did you think about this? Or what do you think about this theme, this theological theme? And how do we tie that in? Eventually, we said, let's let's go gather around coffee or a beer or a pizza and talk about these movies and story arcs and, and comic books and uh, talk about the philosophical and theological uh, themes that are within them. And then uh, when I moved to North Carolina, of course, wanted to keep, The God Loves Geeks book club going in this congregation and quickly found uh, 10 to 20 geeks like myself who couldn't wait to do that. And then my local comic shop here in North Carolina, Ultimate Comics, they run North Carolina Comic Con and uh, eventually gave me the opportunity to moderate some panels, Finding God in Comics and uh, moderating some panels, interviewing Um, creators and artists and it's been been really fun and then those circles kind of grew and grew and grew and eventually met matthew Brake, and he introduced me to theocon that there's um not just geeks in the church or outside the church processing these big big grand narrative uh, meta-narrative themes but but there's also an academic level so a whole nother um universe multiverse of, of exploring these things so really excited to read this book and preview this book and then and then talk about
0: it yeah i'm glad to have you on um, i i love comics too you're much more knowledgeable about them than i am and so um i'm happy to have the support system and uh, it's great to get you on the show um just in yeah, general anyway And uh, Will and I are going to be kind of tag teaming, I guess. Here, Uh, Marvel team up. Uh, (laughs) I used to to buy that when I was a kid. Um, uh, With with Gregory Stephen, Doctor Stevenson. Um, Why don't you tell us a little about yourself? You're the editor of this really great volume, um, Theology in the Marvel Universe. um, Part of the uh, the series that Matt Break, the uh, Theology and Pop Culture series that Matt Break. organizes. I don't know what the technical term for that is, for whatever he Curate. does. <laughs> Curates. Curate. yes. Uh, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. First off, thanks for having me on. Uh, oh, I'm my pleasure. i to be here and have a chance to, to talk about the book. Um, yeah, I'm somebody who, um, you know, ever since I was young, I always had sort of dual interests. Um, you know, I was always, I really kind of developed an interest in theology pretty early on. I think I was about 13 years old, when I decided I wanted to be a preacher, you know, I kind of determined that was going to be sort of my life goal and the course I wanted to to set on. It was also around that same time that I really got interested in comic books. Um, it really came from uh, my father. My father happened to own a bookstore in our local mall, or I, I sorry about that. My father owned an ice cream shop in our local mall, and there was a bookstore right next to it. And uh, when I was 12 years old, the owner of the bookstore had this large trash bag of comic books that he was throwing away because uh, you know, they were past their sell date. And my father was walking by and he, instead of throwing them away, just gave them to my dad, who then you know brought them home. And it was like Christmas, you know, dumping out this mm. trash bag and piles and piles of comic books there uh, wow. that I just started to devour. And kind of unlike Will, I never took a break. I mean, from that moment on, I was sort of hooked uh, and just became a, a big comic book and superhero fan from then on. And but the, those two parts, you know, my interest in theology, my interest in comic books, have, and, and not just comic books, but all aspects of popular culture. I mean, I love video games and film and television and all these different aspects. But I always kind of kept them separate. Uh, you know, there's like, you know, my theological interests, my pop culture interests were just kind of different parts of my life. And so initially, you know, I set out. Uh, I went to college, uh, Harding University down in Arkansas, as a Bible major. Again, initially planning to, to become a preacher or a minister. Uh, but quickly determined that sort of my calling was more towards academics. And so I I just kind of threw myself into biblical studies, which was uh, my area. Uh, Went on to Emory, which is where I I did my PhD and uh, wrote my dissertation on the Book of Revelation, which is sort of one of my big, big areas. Uh, And then I started teaching up at Rochester University uh, up in Michigan, where I've been uh, now for quite a while. And initially, my academic career was focused both primarily on the book of Revelation and biblical studies, and that's where my publications came from. And so that was sort of my professional life. And then uh, all this pop culture stuff was just kind of my private life. And I, I never, it never occurred to me to really bring those two together, unlike with Will, who seemed to kind of see that connection uh, for him pretty early on. And that really kind of changed for me in the early 2000s, around 2002, 2003, uh, when I was a big fan of, of the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. at that time. And it just so happened there were several other faculty members uh, at Rochester University who were big fans. One was an English professor, one was a communications professor, another uh, biblical studies professor. And we would just happened to have these hallway conversations where we'd meet together and we'd talk about the most recent episode. And it was through those conversations that I started to see how these two worlds of mine could really easily come together. Um, and so out of that, in 2004, I, I published a book on, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, called Televised Morality. And I kind of intended that to be sort of a one shot, you know, I'd get this out of my system and go back to doing what I do. Um, but after that, I just started getting you know, all of these different off- offers to write on this pop culture topic or this pop culture topic. And there were things that were really interesting to me that I couldn't turn down. And so it just kind of took on a life of its own that I sort of had, you know, kind of sort of went off into this area of engaging uh, pop culture and, and, and theology, which you know ultimately led you know, eventually to this book as well.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I, I, it, the... I think it's one of those things, and we'll get into this later, that I think folks who love the comics probably um, don't realize how much theological material there is, and people who love theology probably don't realize how much theological material there is in comics, right? And, and so I think this book um, really is a really interesting intersection that brings a couple of great um, bodies of work together, and I think you guys are both um, perfect examples of that. And, and you teach New Testament, is that uh, your, your, uh, your professional day job? Yeah, the, the, that's kind of the main area. I
2: teach a New Testament and Greek classes, but I've also, just because of my interests, have, have been doing a lot of classes on religion and popular culture as well that I've kind of uh, brought into my uh, area there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, thanks. Thanks so much. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, I want to talk about, I want to get into this, I want to get this in twice, um, once at the beginning and once at the end. Uh, for folks who might be interested in this book, um, where can they pick it up?
2: Ah, uh, they should be able to get it just about anywhere. I mean, you can go to you know the websites of of the publisher like Lexington Books and Fortress Academic. Uh, you can find it through there. Amazon, you know, is a very good place to get it. Um, so yeah, pretty much you know, any place where people are you know these days are buying books online, they should be able to get it. Yeah, Amazon or the publisher's website are probably some of the easiest. Places I can think
0: of. Yeah, it's widely available. Um, I would, if those of you, I have a lot of listeners who are academics of one type or another, and if I would ask you to ask your library to uh, to order the book, um, it's something I think a lot of people would find value in, and um, and the essays are really insightful, really accessible, and and really, um, uh, I don't know, they just open up new worlds for me, and I learned a lot by reading it, and I guess we'll get into that now. So. Um,
1: Yeah, I I just want to add something you said, Greg, about like um, this kind of either or mentality, kind of compartmentalize, you know, my pop culture is over here, my theology and religions over here. And I think as a parish pastor, uh, half of my job is giving people permission that uh, that it's not doesn't have to be either or it can be a both. And it's an integrated intersectional life, you know, whether it's faith and science or pop culture and um, theology and belief that that all these can merge and orbit uh, around one another in terms of their gravitational pull. I, I do want to like this first sentence in your introduction. I, I just have to read it. Okay, so um, there is a grand meta narrative composed by multiple authors spread out over time that represents both unity and diversity throughout its interlocking stories, and that engages themes of justice, redemption, sacrifice, enduring conflict between good and evil. Although I'm speaking of the Bible, the same holds true for the Marvel Universe. And it was that sentence, it was like, boom, you got it. You get me. You know you know my story. You know my life. You're, you're singing my song. So it's like, and, and I think in terms of Uh, my teaching and preaching and and ministry or just involvement in pop culture and and theology is that that's it. All these themes within the scripture, this grand narrative of different stories and characters intersecting in this uh, kind of one continuity universe uh, is the same as going on, whether it's DC or Marvel or Star Wars. Um, And so what the book does, it just kind of, brings up this whole cast of characters within the movies and the TV shows and, and comics that, that lift up these themes that what we've been teaching and preaching in theology for a long, long time. And it's really kind of a gateway or, as like you say, a fertile ground, a, another means or a, a tool, a sandbox where we can experiment thinking through these deeper questions that people are asking or wrestling with.
2: Yeah, and that's uh, that's one of the things, actually, I try to emphasize to a lot of my students uh, in some of my classes, because yeah, we do tend to have this sort of compartmentalized approach. You know, we think of, you know, a lot of church people tend to think of theology as something that's confined to the, to the church building or confined to this community. And then they see the world outside as something sort of completely separate uh, that if they engage at all, it's because we have to go out and sort of, you know, get them and bring them into to where we are. And so one of the things I try to to emphasize is, you know, there is a theological conversation that's happening in the culture outside the church. Uh, And this conversation these days is largely happening through popular culture, whether it's through comic books and film and television that people are talking about uh, issues of redemption and sacrifice and hope and, and so forth. And the church, to a large part, has opted out of that conversation. We've just kind of stayed within our walls and tried to do our own little thing Meanwhile, there are people are engaging these topics. And, you know, it's important, I think, for us to become a part of that conversation uh, and things like this, you know, engaging pop culture is one way of us being able to uh, join that conversation.
1: Yeah. And it's not that we're using pop culture as kind of a Trojan horse to manipulate or um, convert or really um kind of insert our our own views, but using that as a tool to go deeper with folks. You talked about hallway conversations within where where you are. Um, mine was was Narthex uh, conversations, you know, before after church talking about, oh, we know you're a Star Wars fan. What did you think of the movie? And I was like, cool, we can have a two minute conversation. But then finding other opportunities to go to go deeper uh, with these themes and then and then. Yeah, all these are there. Underlying scripture and the theology that that we're speaking of, and preaching as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I also think that, you know, other, you know, gosh, I don't know, like small town churches, uh, especially in the South, they have no problem attaching um, like sports. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan mm-hmm. of X SEC football team and let's theologize the heck out of that. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think um, there's probably a lot more, definitely a lot more uh, in something like this. Uh, and I also like the idea of um, bridging worlds too. one kind of um, assignment that I do, in many classes now, not every class, but uh, so for example, I taught a class on Franz Kafka and at the end of the semester, I could have them write a research paper about Kafka, but there's been so much. They're not going to be able to come up with anything original. Right. And so what I had them do was choose, Another story, or another movie, or another book that they could apply some Kafka, um, uh, you know, lens to and read that through this. And so I, I think there's a lot of value in matching things that seem unmatchable, right, uh, and, and finding these parallels that that, that run through uh, commonly. And that's kind of what this show's about, really. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, one of the things you know, that that I think this book does, and then the you know again I'll give a shout out you know one of the things that I think makes this book or you know the main thing that makes this book as good as it is are the contributors, and so Absolutely. I really want to thank them for all the of the hard work and the effort that they've uh, put into this and the insights that they brought. Uh, but yeah, you know you know as you mentioned, you know, one of the things is you know a lot of times the the Christian mentality is that you know we have the truth and we need to go out and take it to them, and one of the things that I think a lot of these essays tend to illustrate is that. We can learn as Christians uh, a lot from these stories themselves. Uh, it's not just about us taking theology, you know, outward, uh, but these stories of superheroes and so forth have a lot to say to us, and there are things that we can learn uh, from them as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is not this book does not like is not preachy, right? There's a probably a lot of um, theological perspectives, and I want to get into this later that. Uh, a lot of kind of mainstream evangelical especially Christians would not be on board with these theological approaches right um, and so this is not a uh, um, this is not a simplistic you know get saved by watching Iron Man uh, sort of uh, a set of narratives right or, or essays
1: um, right it's not a bible track uh, yes. you know all right resurrection happens in the in infinity saga or in-game so yeah. this is why you should go to church on on Easter there's 14 essays all all very very different from all kinds of perspectives from the headline you know most well-known heroes of all time like like spider-man or uh, all the way to like Luke Page and Venom and Jessica Jones and uh, um, yeah so it's, it goes deep in all levels of, yeah uh, and I was even learning. So I'm a lifelong Marvel, Marvel head. And I, I was like, I didn't even know that there's a history there. There's like, I'm learning and growing in the midst of it as well. There's yeah, history. It,
2: yeah it definitely isn't, you know, it does take an academic approach, uh, you know, very much to these topics. Although again, they you know, designed or hopefully at least by design to be one that's accessible to people who are non-academics. Uh, but yeah, it isn't sort of just the, you know, the faith, you know, kind of rah, rah for Jesus from these stories, but very much trying to do kind of a deep, uh, sort of exploration of various themes and ideas.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used, I used to teach at a Pentecostal college actually before I have <laughs> in my current job, <clears throat> Mount Aloysius college, which is throw a shout out <laughs> to that. Um, the, uh, uh, there was an essay about Doctor Strange and Pentecostalism, right? I, I like it was just so illuminating to me. It was just great. Um, and incidentally, I did my dissertation on Jewish American fiction, and the the character Sabra. The, I had no idea it would even existed. I found so much interesting in that um, essay about that character mm-hmm. and Israeli Palestinian um, relations. It's it's fascinating. Great.
2: Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, it's a very fascinating character that you know. Again, most people haven't heard of. Yeah. And, and, yeah, uh, you know, Amanda in her essay does a really good job, I think, of uh, sort of exploring, you know, the, the value of that character and, and, and the way it engaged Palestinian-Israeli relations. Yeah, it was, it's a, I think it's one of, the, one of the highlights in many respects of opening people's eyes to uh, a character that they're not familiar with and, and sort of you know, the use of these comic books to engage, uh, you know, even some sociopolitical uh, yeah. kinds of issues.
0: I'd love to see that character get rebooted um in some way in a in in a contemporary um you know run. But all right, so let's get into some formal questions then. Uh we're twenty minutes into this already for Pete's sake. Um and so uh, what Greg, why don't you talk for a little bit about Marvel's the general appeal since Iron Man basically came out in 2008. Um, I, I want to say that it probably should have started with Blade. I mean, for me, Blade was the first really great superhero movie. Uh, and uh, but it really took another decade or so uh, for it to kind of catch on um, in popularity. So what 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 is it about Marvel that people are drawn to right now?
2: Well, I think I think there are several <clears throat> things going on here. Uh, in particular, that have really kind of taken hold over the last 10, 12 years, you know, as you mentioned. And one of the things, I think, is that Marvel uh, has done something that's unprecedented. You know, there are certain uh, kind of unwritten rules in Hollywood uh, that were kind of just the standard conventional wisdom for a long time, one of which was that, you know, unless it's focused on the big three of Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man, comic book stories don't sell. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this came from the idea of, Sort of viewing comic book stories as really just being children's stories, uh, things that were just kind of you know fun but didn't really have any depth or, or resonance to them, and so there was this again assumption that these stories just simply aren't aren't going to sell, and especially if you're dealing with lesser heroes, you know like Iron Man and uh, you know Captain America or others who aren't as well known, that they're simply not going to sell. People just don't really care enough about those characters. Uh, on top of that, kind of another unwritten rule was that. You, know, you especially if you're doing a, a comic book or superhero story, you can't sign serious actors to it. You know, no serious actor is going to want mm-hmm. to commit, you know, to a multi-picture franchise uh, type of film, and you also can't have an interconnected series of films. You know, that's something that Hollywood never really ha- has done. It was just kind of conventional wisdom that's not going to work. And so, I think part of the appeal is that Marvel came along and broke all the rules. You know, they they did mm-hmm. all of these things that supposedly you you weren't able to do, and so if people were seeing something new. That they'd never seen before uh, and never experienced in a a cinematic fashion before. Um, Kind of in addition to that is the fact that, you know, these stories, and I think this is one of the big reasons for the appeal of these stories, is that people underestimated the power of the stories themselves. Uh, I think it's, you know, the fact that superhero stories are stories, in fact, that have great resonance and depth to them. You know, a lot of people will talk about how comic books are today's version of mythology, you know the ancient mm. mythological stories of the Greeks and the Romans and so forth. And they're certainly true to that because mythological stories are stories that we tell. They're usually stories of fantastical elements, you know, gods and heroes and monsters. Uh, but we tell these fantastical stories really as a way of understanding our experience and understanding the world around us. And, you know, mythological stories tend to be religious stories at the same time. Uh, because they deal with the same kinds of themes of of redemption and power and hope and responsibility and justice and salvation and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, uh, the fact that these superhero stories are very much kind of our mo- modern cultural mythology makes them also, in many ways, religious stories that deal with these these kinds of themes that we all think about, uh, we all deal with and and, and uh, resonate with. And Stan Lee actually uh, made a great comment on this. Um, uh, B.J. Oropisa has a book on... Uh, comic books and superheroes. I think it's the gospel according to superheroes. Mm. And uh, the introduction is actually written by Stan Lee in that. And in it, Stan Lee makes this comment about how when he was writing comic books, he never intended to include religious or mythological elements in them. But he said they were just there naturally. Uh, Because anytime Mm. you're telling these kinds of stories, you're telling religious stories. And so those themes just tended to be uh, inherent in that. And so the fact that you know, these marble stories are stories about justice and good versus evil and redemption and sacrifice. Uh, you know, these are stories about, you know, things that we aspire to. And, and, you know, these heroes are heroes that capture sort of who we wish that we were. Uh, and so I think there's just a great appeal there to people uh, in engaging these kinds of stories.
1: Yeah, yeah I, think, well, I think the power of story um, is that and myth is that it allows us to reflect upon the meaning of the human condition and the predicament that that we're in and and it's what humans have done for forever since we could think consciously or ask any kind of question or think forward or backward we're processing uh what it means to be human and what is my place in this world and so whether it's the the greek um mythological stories or um the wild west or whether it's uh (laughs) (laughs) or <laughs> comic books or sci-fi, where we're trying to iron out and work out uh, what it means to be human, and that I think that's why it relates so well to what we're doing, in kind of the biblical context and theological. Who, who am I? Who is God? What's my place in this world? And, and and I think the emergence of the Marvel U over the last decade is that you have you finally have actors and directors like John Favreau and Kevin Smith, and uh, Joss Whedon, who grew up reading these as well. So they knew their power as part of their childhood, as part of their story, so when they come to the table to direct and tell these stories, there's a certain level of respect and reverence to the story that they're conveying to the mass audience. And um, and I think that's why it really took hold. I think of John Favreau and what he's doing now with with Star Wars and The Mandalorian and, and what all the controversy around Disney and Star Wars <laughs> sequels and prequels and what's hit and what's not, um, what fans like or not. But John Favreau is holding that as a certain kind of a sacred text of his own because it's what he grew up with, and he's now conveying that to others. Um, and, and what I like about this book, bringing back to the book too, is that yeah, there's the big heavy hitters of what we all know are the big the top ten movies and the big blockbusters. Um, but but even in your essay about about Spider Man. Yeah, we know the Spider Spider Man in the movie, or those kinds of things. But then you go deeper into, uh, I would probably no one really knows about the comic arc Superior Spider Man uh, Doctor <laughs> Octopus taking on the consciousness uh, of of Peter Parker's body. I mean, comics are so fun. Switch consciousnesses? What are you talking about? Like, you know, all that you get, you can you can have fun within this medium and experiment and do crazy things because it allows you to do that. So it's not just the move. the movies can be a gateway to go deeper into the literature that, that is, is out there.
2: Yeah, and I would add to that, that, uh, you know, again, one of the things, another thing we could add that has made these movies so popular uh, in the last few years, again, is just the, you know, the advent and the uh, improvement that we've made in special effects that make these movies right. sort of a mm-hmm. spectacle just visually they're, they're so much fun uh, but yet these stories wouldn't be so popular if they were just a spectacle you know it's because underneath all of that there is a, they do resonate with us and they are speaking to uh, much deeper themes about humanity and who we are uh, and so yeah if, if all you had was just the special effects um, you know, these movies wouldn't quite connect i think in the same way that they do
0: yeah, yeah, and, and Will makes a good point about the the talent that's in, that's attached to these now. Um, not only in the actors, but in the in the production end of it as well. And and yeah, there's so many decades now of artists who grew up of, of truly yeah, great artists who grew up consuming this kind of art, right? And so it's part of it's it's part of high culture for them. Like there's not that kind of distinction really. And, uh, and this goes even beyond filmmaking, um, in the literary scene, uh, people like Michael Shabon and, uh, and Jonathan Lethem, um, uh, really great, like American writers also grew up reading comic books, um, right alongside Catcher in the Rye and all the other things that they read, right? And, and so, and, and I think that they, uh, then incorporated Michael Shabon's great, um, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is kind of a, a fantasy, a fantastical version of, something like the superman origin story and uh and yeah and so no it's a it's a really really um uh fertile body of work that artists now are tapping into and so we're just kind of at this perfect moment when technology meets that artistic vision um to create this uh really interesting body of work that though marvel the marvel films i have to say just to kind of um Maybe I don't know. Just to kind of acknowledge the fact, they can be a little formulaic, right? Uh, I mean, there is a, definitely a pattern that these things follow that are generally predictable, right? Um, like the the hero is always going to be fighting basically a negative version of himself, right? And so, you know, <laughs> Iron Man fights bad Iron Man, Black Panther literally fights bad Black Panther, right? And so, um, right. and and so, but but beyond but beyond that, there is a complexity. To the to the philosophies and to the stories that these tell, the fact that your main hero or one of your two main heroes for the entire cinematic universe, Tony Stark, is um, in many ways for me paralleled with Thanos, your main villain, right? I mean, he's like in some ways um, not that different from Thanos, and 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 the fact that is a, a level of kind of artistic complication that makes these more compelling than I think people should expect they would or would expect they should be.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they both kind of have this sort of utilitarian approach to, you know, especially you see with the Avengers Age of Ultron, kind of the ends justify the means uh, sort of approach Mm -hmm. that... Can lead to disastrous results.
0: Yeah, and that goes. Um, let me. Can we spend a minute on your essay since Will brought it up—the one about Spider-Man? Because sure. I've you know gone on record about not not liking Tony Stark, and, and people give me crap about that. But um, what I, <laughs> one of the reasons that I don't think I really quite understood this critique, but reading your essay drew it out for me. Um, when you're talking about the the Spider-Man story, the Superior Spider-Man, where Doctor Octopus basically switches consciousnesses, consciences with. Uh, 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 with Peter Parker and becomes Peter Parker and becomes Spider Man, and uh, and he basically applies a villain's outlook to Spider Man's powers, and then is therefore kind of technically more successful. He is a superior Spider Man than Peter Parker is because. And you bring out, you quote somebody, I forget who, um, talking about how heroes are generally reactive and villains are proactive. Villains begin things and they seek ends, right? That's exactly what Tony Stark does, right? <laughs> Tony Stark um, always causes all the problems of the, of the Marvel Universe because he is the one trying to instigate changes into the world instead of just reacting to changes that villains instigate. And, and that was so brilliant for me. I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was kind of
2: interesting. I actually had not intended to do um, uh, an article on Spider-Man, uh, even though Spider-Man is my personal uh, favorite superhero. Uh, in fact, uh, originally, you know, my original plan was when I was putting this together and, and uh, collecting the essays, I really hadn't given any thought to what I was going to do specifically, because I wanted to wait and see sort of what kind of topics came in and, and how the book was shaping up, up, and then if there were any kind of uh, sort of gaps that I felt needed to be explored, you know, I might explore some of those. And so initially I felt like, uh, you know, because this this book uh, isn't simply a book on comic books, you know, it, it addresses comic books, Marvel films, and Marvel television. Right. And Initially, I felt like the Marvel television side was a little less represented. So my initial plan was I was going to do an essay on The Punisher, mm-hmm. Netflix's Punisher series. And so I actually spent a lot of time on that until it just didn't really excite me. And so I decided to scrap it. And then kind of at the last minute, just this, you know, idea of of working with Spider-Man came up and I sort of threw myself into that. And, you know, the question that really intrigued me about that is, you know, it's, you know, it's really commonplace, you know, to associate Spider-Man with his motto of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And we've heard that over and over again. Uh, But I kind of wanted to explore that because even though that's so closely associated with Spider-Man, you know, it seems to me that that's not unique to Spider-Man, you know, every Mm -hmm. human operates with the, the motto of great power and great responsibility. You know, that's what every single, super, it's the definition of being a superhero. You have this power, you're trying to use it responsibly. Uh, so to me, the more interesting question is, well, what different, differentiates heroes then? You know, and in, in how is it that heroes might understand power differently, might understand responsibility differently? And this arc by Dan Slott, uh, it's kind of like a 10-year arc that he did uh, that culminated in the Superior Spider-Man uh, arc is one that I had read recently. So it was kind of fresh in my mind. And it just it, it tied into all of these things. I mean, th- these are a lot of the themes that he's really exploring in that where, you know, if you take, you know, Peter Parker, and you replace him with Dr. Octopus, so that Dr. Octopus becomes Spider-Man. And one of the things in the story, it's not just that he takes over, you know, pretending to be Spider-Man, he actually, it's kind of too complex to to go into the details. But mm-hmm. he actually commits himself to trying to be Spider-Man and to live up to this motto of "of with great power comes great responsibility," and so he's trying to do the exact same thing Spider-Man does, but it gets you to think about, you know, how would a villain look at that? Uh, you know, a villain's going to define power very differently, going to define responsibility very differently, and he, and he does kind of take a utilitarian ends justify the means approach. And one of the fascinating things in that story is you do see that in many ways it does show results uh, that crime does go down, and he is able to, you know one of the the interesting things is, you know, one of the hallmarks of Spider-Man is his refusal to kill, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he won't kill his, his villains. He always captures them, even though, you know, he knows and everybody knows they're just going to get out and do more bad things. But for Spider-Man, you know, that's, that's kind of a line in the sand. Well, Dr. Octopus doesn't have that problem. He sees, well, if you've got a a guy who's going to do horrible things, you know, killing him is the greater good. Uh, and there's this, this issue in the story where there's a, um, a villain, I think his name is Massacre, if I remember correctly, who's actual, you know, he's a super-powered serial killer that Spider-Man captured and put in jail. And he gets out and goes on a rampage and kills 33 more people. You know, and Dr. Octopus, as Spider-Man brings up this issue that, you know, well, if Spider-Man had just killed him initially, all these innocent people would live. And so it causes you to think about some of these questions where you realize there, there is a point there. I mean, yeah, I mean, Spider-Man's moral actions does often, uh, even as he's trying to avoid death, can sometimes... Uh, result in death. So it, you know, it really kind of gets you to face both sides of the issues and think about a lot of these issues of, of power and responsibility. Uh, and again, you know, that's, that's the value of these kinds of stories, not necessarily that they give us answers, but they get get us to think about uh, some of these kinds of issues and questions on a deeper level.
1: Yeah, so you, you, you know, you, the stereotype, the books are just for children, and, and uh you know grade school kids and then wait you mean you're talking about redemptive justice you're talking about incarceration you're talking about the death penalty you're talking about the moral choices we make of uh, uh the death penalty or not i mean that all that is deep complex stuff that that uh our deep political um means by which we're we're wrestling with as a society and uh so yeah th- here's another means and tool by which to do that and i another thing that i liked about your your essay there is this understanding of weakness versus power um as as a lutheran we uh, have this theology of the cross where you know what is what is weakness what is glory what is power um and how does that all work out so really what is important and then eventually i mean no spoilers but in kind of dr octopus has kind of a conversion experience and understanding deeper level peter parker's moral dilemma and kind of what he's been trying to do so he over a course of a couple of years or a year a big big story arc eventually dr octopus comes around and he's like ah i understand peter parker on a, on a deeper level by literally walking in his shoes right
2: right um,
1: so yeah yeah
2: and then you've got, yeah, then, you know, to get back to the Iron Man, you know, Tony Stark issue, you know, there you've got kind of a third example of another hero trying to use power responsibility, power responsibly, but, you know, does so in a different way. Uh, and, you know, kind of what I explore is that, you know, what I try to argue is that what's unique to Spider-Man, and this is where I connect it to, you know, the, this theology of weakness uh, that we see uh, throughout the Bible, which is this idea that the, the greatest exploration of, of using power responsibly is essentially to give it up. You know, to to embrace mm-hmm. weakness, to embrace limitation, to embrace sacrifice, uh, which Spider-Man e- embodies very well, and Tony Stark does not. Uh, you know, Tony Stark is tr- is certainly trying to use his power responsibly. He is certainly a hero, uh, but he takes a different approach. You know, his, his arrogance you know contrasts with Peter Parker's uh, natural humility. So just his wealth and power that he has in society, whereas Peter Parker you know is always struggling uh, financially. Uh, just sort of puts him in a different pr- position, gives him a different perspective on on how power can be used, and so I just—it was very fascinating to kind of contrast uh, those two characters.
1: And eventually, team them up in the Marvel Universe, right? I mean, who would mm-hmm. think like these cameos between the two, um, of having that interaction? You have this contrast of two—they're both brilliant scientists. But then they're using their powers and thinking through you have a futurist and then you have someone who's just really uh, this kid trying to figure out uh, what kind of responsibility he has protecting his little local favorite neighborhood and family. Um, so, so even within the Marvel Universe, they team them up um as this kind of contrast which which is really really well done so
2: yeah you see that represented in their different approach to masks as well Uh, you know where is quick to take off his mask you know i am iron man and, and you know accept the public acclaim that goes with that whereas peter parker you know wears that mask tries to hide his identity which you know is often you know characterized in terms of him trying to protect his loved ones but i think there's also a humility aspect to that you know he doesn't seek acclaim. he doesn't seek reward and, and approbation for the, the accomplishments and the things that he makes. But yeah, it was interesting because as I was working on the, uh, you know, the dance slot superior Spider-Man arc in which uh, Tony Stark plays a role and, you know, shows up in that arc and is contrasted with Peter Parker uh, in a number
1: of Yep. Fries up a little bit.
2: Brought into the end of the article. Okay. I was two through characters being paired together and a lot of the same themes, Sort of being explored there as well.
0: You broke up there for a little bit. I might have to edit some of that out. But, um, but sorry about that. Um, yeah, and honestly, I think that's one thing that's interesting. You bring up the the demasking. Um, that's one thing that's interesting to me about the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that's like really the. I mean, Iron Man is the the coming out of that that universe, and it ends with getting rid of the secret identity. And to me, that's got to be symptomatic of some change in our culture because superheroes Mm. never did that before right and and there must be something different about our time now where um that that demasking works for us Um, and now it's just sort of like Captain America almost never has his mask on in these movies, right? And 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 so I just feel like there's a, and everyone knows who he is anyway. I don't, and so and so yeah, I, I feel like there's there's something to be explored there, and I don't know if there's already work been done on that, but it's always kind of on some level bothered me, and it's probably I mean I'm willing to accept the fact that it's just not the way I'm used to it, uh, and that's why it bothers me. I'm not uh, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not immune to that that self criticism. Well, I mean,
1: the, the cynical part of me is like, well, these are multi million dollar blockbuster actors and actresses who are like, you know, I, if you're going to pay me this money, I want my face on the screen. So, like, you know, please show who I am. I got a handsome jawline, so let's let's get that <laughs> up on the screen. Um, but I think there's also a follow up article or supplement. To this book where we can talk about masks in our society today you know this debate of whether i wear masks Hell in society yeah. or protecting others what's my responsibility in the covid 19 world um what kind of masks am i wearing and my refusal fear or not or um am i protecting others am i protecting myself what does that mean so yeah it's it's all it it's an ongoing thing it's still something we're debating. And even now more than ever, the the use of masks and whether you can see me smile or recognize me or not. Right.
0: Holy cow. You got to write that yeah. for Matthew. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: If we ever do a volume two of this book, you know, there's your chapter right there. You can contribute. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah that's a great idea. Yeah. And, and I think you're right though, Greg, I think it has something to do with, um, you can't discount the, the role of Peter's humility and, and how he's not seeking to be... Um idolized or something as, as an individual, as Peter Parker. Right. Um, Now I think you can make the case that he does want Spider-Man to be more, (laughs) to be more loved than he is. Right. Um, But, but, and so, and where Peter Parker ends and Spider-Man begins is another
1: question, but yeah. Um, And, and let me just go ahead. I want to go one back. You're talking about like the movies being kind of this um, formula and tropes that they do over and over again. It's like, Hey, this one made, um so much money let's do that again over and over again and, there, and there's this worry of this kind of superhero movie fatigue blockbuster fatigue event fatigue um and it's when marvel switches their game up just a little bit and tweaks the story that kind of revitalizes this and it's like well i guess this isn't going away and one of the essays uh, number 12 um dealing with thor ragnarok i mean that, i think that's Let's try something different. Thor was the kind of the more anemic of the Marvel movies, and and less exciting, and always on the bottom of the lists when it talks about my favorite movie. But then here comes Thor: Ragnarok, and um, they do something different. They add humor. They add different levels of of story and complexity. And then, you know, I've seen that movie a number of times. But then it wasn't until reading the the essay about there's this deeper understanding of colonialism and post-colonialism that I was like, wow! It just opened up a whole new window of thinking through what that movie is about, but also applying to issues that are going on in our own country in terms of uh, race and um, um, uh, Native Americans, uh, everything you think of in terms of the American life right now on the political scale. So, Greg, I maybe if you have anything more to expand on that, but just in terms of that one caught my attention and kind of this. We're going to change things up just a little bit in the Marvel universe to go on a whole different level that really changed how they move forward in other movies.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's been fascinating about this as well, of how different Marvel movies haven't, even though there is a, a general template that they kind of follow, uh, they have often shifted it up in many ways. You know, like with uh, you know uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier being more of a political kind of conspiracy thriller. And so yeah you have this general genre of the comic book film but within that they've been playing with different kinds of genre and different kinds of stories uh, which i think has helped to keep it uh, fresh and alive in a lot of different ways and i think that's contributed a lot to to what's going on here as well as you know one of the things that um i'll just throw this out here too you know that that i've really kind of resonated with uh with the marvel cinematic universe is you know growing up reading comic books and one of the things that always attracted me about the comic books is if I was sitting there reading a Spider-Man comic book, comic book I knew that the story I was reading was part of a much larger world and a larger story. Because I knew yeah. that in this, in the, even, though, even if the story I was reading was just about Spider-Man, I knew that Thor existed in this world and Captain America was out there. And at any time, one of those characters could have shown up in Spider-Man's story or Spider-Man would be showing up in Daredevil's story. And that interconnected... Sort of universe of stories is one of the things that that really drew me into it, and mm-hmm. you know, Marvel's ability to replicate that uh, in, in you know in cinema where these characters and these stories interact, I think, is just is something that resonates with us in a lot of ways as we think about you know how our stories as human beings and, and uh, resonate and connect with those around us.
1: Yeah, that understanding that we're all connected and that my story is a part of your story and my actions affect what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, we're we're seeing that, right? There's there's that's happening.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and, you know, earlier you said something about, well, that these stories are like kids stories, right? And and to a degree that's true, right? But I, so I was out of comics for many years. Um, and since I moved back to, or moved here to this little town in Pennsylvania, we have a little comic shop around the corner and I, I like to throw them business. So I've gotten back into comic books since I've lived here. And um, one of the titles I'm reading is Immortal Hulk um, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really enjoying that it's, Astoundingly complex Like I can't imagine a kid even being able To follow what's happening in this story Let alone um, Enjoying it right and, and so Like in some at some level it is like These are kids stories right um, They're they're built off of kids stories But they've become something different They've become I mean Immortal Hulk I have to say is every bit As baffling to me as like reading Ulysses by James Joyce is <laughs> On some <laughs> level I understand James Joyce more I think and then I do uh, some of what's going on in Immortal Hulk, because a, I don't have all the references to all the other Hulk stories that they're they're regurgitating in this in this run, but but b, the the stories themselves are just very big and esoteric and philosophical and, and even theological.
1: and 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 there's uh, there's analogy there in terms of how we deal deal with scripture in the in the bible right there's there's children's bibles that are almost like graphic novels you see the picture of of noah's ark and it's almost like a nursery rhyme or the wallpaper you put in in a nursery but then if you really read deeper and what's really going on in that text is deeply violent and disturbing what is happening within the universe and often when i do go to comic cons and They're like, oh, you're a geek, you're a Star Wars guy, you're a leader, oh, you're a pastor too? They're like, oh, you still believe in Santa? That's cute. You know, (laughs) and like, I'm glad that you are trying to be a good person and that's cute, you still believe. But I'm like, no, if you knew the complexity of these diverse voices – literally arguing we, with each other within the scriptures of how they understand God, um, you would be amazed at the depth and complexity that are there within the scripture themselves. So there is like, yeah, I can go to the comic store and get um, a, a very children's friendly, children, child friendly graphic novel about the Hulk or Spider-Man. It's very cute, cartoony, but then you can turn and get Immortal or, or Superior Spider-Man this on a complex level dealing with deeper, deeper issues. And I think the same way goes with Scripture. Let's, let's grow up. And that's part of my job as a parish pastor, campus minister, youth director, is to help them see the complexity and move away from kind of kindergarten, first grade, second grade, Sunday school into a kind of a more, you know, what Greg is teaching in terms of New Testament and revelation, the complexity within those stories and books and the authors that are trying to present who God is and who we are as a people.
2: Yeah. You know, for me, one of the comparisons here that I think is helpful is is uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. You had to think of those as children's books, but C.S. Lewis strongly resisted sort of the identification of those as children's literature. And he made the same. He says, I was not writing for children. Uh, He says these books were only for children to the extent that I wrote them so that children could understand them and enjoy them. Uh, But, you know, he he intended them to be written uh, more for adults, but accessible for children. And to some extent, these Marvel uh, stories are the same way. Yeah, they're accessible to children. Children love these stories. But there's also this deeper level uh, in this adult engagement that we see in these stories as well, where they're they're stories that resonate with children, but they're not necessarily stories for children.
0: Yeah. Um, Man, this is such a great conversation. And we've already hit Mm -hmm. on some of these things. Uh, So instead of asking you what prompted you to put together uh, this, this, these, this theological um, book, like, how did you go about it? Like, what what, what were the the steps? How did you find the folks who were um, who contributed? And how did you decide? How did you assemble this book?
1: Yeah, they have a sorting hat of who gets to write about uh, game and those who get to write about Jessica Jones. <laughs> I mean, I assume
0: there's like a call for papers and people submit abstracts and you decide, you know, and that kind of thing, right? But um, but I, it seems to me you also wanted a diversity of perspectives and you went out of your way to provide that. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, initially, though, let me start off by just uh, giving a shout out to Matthew Brake because this, this book wouldn't exist without him. Uh, You know, Matthew is, uh, is, as you guys know, is the, you know, runs the pop culture and theology website. And this book actually came about just because he emailed me out of the blue. I didn't know Matthew. Uh, I just got an email from him and, you know, he introduced himself, uh, said he was the series editor for this uh, new series on theology and pop culture that uh, Lexington Books and Fortress Academic was doing and just asked me if I, you know, was interested in proposing a book to edit. Uh, so, you know, on one level, this book uh, wouldn't exist without him. He's one of the contributors to the to the to the volume as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the process of, of putting it together, yeah, it started with a, a call for papers that went out. And my initial intention was I did want this book to be as diverse as possible. Uh, you know, it's, it's diverse in terms of genre, looking at comic books, television, film. And so I wanted as much representation of the different areas there as possible. Uh, but also wanted a, a good representation of the different perspectives and things. But the problem with uh, you know doing a call for papers is that you know you're kind of dependent on what you receive back, uh, and so there's a little bit bit of uncertainty there. Uh, there were a few places where I you know knew of some specific things I wanted, and I kind of sought people out. Uh, one of them was uh, Dan Clanton, who I had worked with before. Dan had edited a book uh, on apocalyptic themes in comic books and graphic novels called The End Will Be Graphic. Mm-hmm. And I written a chapter for uh, that book years ago, so I kind of had a, a connection with Dan. And so I, you know, I contacted him, and he, he had something that he had been working on already on uh, religious violence and uh, X-Men. And mm-hmm. so he was, he was ready to go uh, pretty much with that. Uh, so there were a couple of people that I, I kind of contacted and you know, had some ideas of things for them to work on. Uh, but for a large part, it was dependent on just the, the proposals that I received. And you can imagine, you know, this is a topic that had a great deal of interest. So there were a lot of different proposals that came in, many of which were were outstanding. Uh, You know, you're kind of limited in size. You can't have 30, you know, essays in a book. You know, you you, you kind of have to whittle it down. And that was the most difficult part was having to decide uh, (laughs) which ones to to exclude. Uh, That was not the fun part of the process. Uh, But thankfully, it just kind of worked out that, uh, you know, the proposals that came in, uh, you know, they, they were pretty well represented across, you know, film, television, comic books. Uh, They represented a wide variety of of perspectives. Um, And so it just kind of naturally came together that way. At the same time, you know, there's always going to be some gaps. Uh, There are some things that I wish were more represented. You know, again, all of the essays are pretty strongly uh, focused on Judeo-Christian theology, which I think is natural, uh, in part just because Marvel historically has been more situated within that camp um and, and you're kind of dependent on you know what the people who are interested in writing are, are interested in uh, but i would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more diversity uh, you know I, I was really hoping to have gotten a proposal on uh miss marvel uh and sort of you know her muslim faith and kind of looking at that but uh really right. wasn't able to incorporate in that just um, I didn't get anything uh in those uh respects um but it does you know we have some really good uh, authors we already mentioned uh, Amanda Ferrios with uh, Sabra, uh, Levi Morrow looking at Luke Cage in, in light of Franz Franz Rosenzweig's, uh, you know, theology as a German Jewish philosopher, uh, that provide you know, some very interesting diversity and in, in different perspectives. Uh, and so, yeah, in, in many ways, it, it just kind of came together naturally, which I was very happy to see.
0: Yeah, it was, um, impressive to me the array of different theological approaches. And now I'm not a theologian. Um, I'm very much an amateur, uh, in terms of that. I, it's one of those things I speak English because I grew up speaking English and, and I, I know theology because I grew up in church. And so that's the, it's a benefit and a limitation in that way. Um, but I, I also, um, I felt like this gave me a really great kind of primer for a, further exploration of a lot of other different theological approaches. And, and I guess if I'd like to talk, uh, maybe you could point us to a few, like one that stood out to me was the essay on Jessica Jones. Um, I should bring the name in. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> let me, let me look that up real quick. The Jessica so Jones. Oh, yeah. Taylor Ott. Yes. Um, and the, the way she looks at that series as a kind of critique of kind of substitutionary atonement (laughs) sorts of theologies, right? Uh, uh, Like patriarchal sorts of uh, the way that patriarchal um, world systems influence and interpret um, theologies of salvation. Right. And, and, And I thought that that was, there were so many things in the, the, the notes for that the, in the, in the, in the, the bibliography for that, that I want to kind of um, do further reading on. So that's one that stands out for me. Um, you can talk about that maybe a little bit and, and maybe some others that you think are particularly, that might be kind of insightful for people who have a kind of a generic Christian um, background with not a theological background, something that might be valuable for them to kind of um, look at. Uh, yeah. I mean,
2: it's hard to choose. I mean, we could talk about pretty much any, uh, of these essays yeah. in, in many respects. And I will say, you know, one thing, even though these essays uh, are dealing with academic sort of theological concepts, you know, kind of the the mandate I, that I gave all of the contributors from the beginning was to try and, and write these essays so that they're accessible to the non-academic. Mm. Uh, you don't have to know a lot about theology, hopefully, to, to to learn from these essays and gain from them. And so, you know, the goal was to try and, you know, simplify the concepts and explain things where necessary. Uh, so hopefully they won't be kind of obtuse and and, and difficult to get into. They were not. Uh, yeah. yeah, but, you know, Taylor uh, does a great job. That, that's one thing I was happy. You know, one of the things I knew when I started this volume was I really wanted to have an essay on uh, the Netflix Jessica Jones series. Uh, so I was glad when Taylor uh, proposed one. She did a fantastic job with it. Uh, again, you know, as you mentioned, she's really focusing on the issue of sacrifice and how in patriarchal systems, the notion of, of the woman as a self-sacrificer is kind of, or self-sacrifice is sort of held up as the highest feminine virtue. You know, the woman has to sacrifice for her family, for her husband, you know, sacrifice you know, her own career and different things. And that, that's kind of seen as the epitome of what it means uh, to be feminine. And, you know, she shows how Jessica Jones kind of challenges that by looking at uh, the series from a, a feminist and womanist uh, academic perspective. Uh, and it kind of focuses specifically heavily on, on season two, where you have uh, three female characters, both Jessica Jones, her mother, Alyssa, and, you know, her kind of adopted sister, Trish, who, who each sort of represent different approaches to uh, sacrifice and womanhood. Uh, and, you know, sort of shows how Jessica Jones navigates a lot of those, those kinds of issues. So, it's, you know, it's a way of taking this story and allowing the reader really to get in and, and to see some of these broader topics and, and engage in some of these broader discussions. Uh, a couple of others. I mean, Will already mentioned, uh, you know, Kevin Nye's essay on Thor Ragnarok and post-colonialism, um, you know, which I think is another really fascinating one, you know, that, that talks about the issue of colonialism, you know, where, where a country invades another country and, uh, you know, the the indigenous people are often oppressed and wiped out in, in, in different ways. And then, you know, he really looks at the film from the perspective of post-colonialism, which is sort of asking the question, you know, how do we atone for the past? You know, how do we look at this bloody history of colonialism mm-hmm. that, that we've engaged in, and what are the responsible ways of responding to that? Uh, which is a theme that, if you know, if you go back and you watch Thor Ragnarok through that lens, you see it all over the place. You know, it's very present in the film. You know, you have the scene, of course, where uh, you know Asgard is presented as a colonializer, uh, colonialist force, and you have the scene where Hela goes into the palace, and you have all these paintings sort of depicting Asgard history in, the, in this triumphalistic way, but she destroys them, and you see that behind them. You know, there is the real history of Asgard, uh, which was bloody and violent and oppressive. Uh, And it shows, you know, it addresses how colonialism can often obscure the truth and hide the truth, uh, whereas post-colonialism is about trying to challenge those sort of accepted narratives uh, and figure out how to move forward in a a more uh, responsible way. Uh, So there are several essays like that. Again, you know, I mentioned Levi Morrow's essay on Luke Cage, where he, Uh, reads in the light of Franz Rosenzweig's Theology of the Past and how the past helps to shape our present identity. Um, Tim Posada and Kristen Lehmann both take on the Infinity uh, War series and and look at Thanos in some fascinating ways, uh, with Kristen looking at uh, issues of sacrifice and how that connects to Thanos and Tim Posada uh, talking about material theology and how Thanos is a a materialist and and kind of even a caricature of socialism uh, in Mm -hmm. some ways and explores uh, a lot of those kinds of issues about population control and, and justifying the means and so forth. So, yeah, they're just, I mean, I could go on through so many of these, but all of these essays just uh, really bring us into different aspects of theology and get us to see these familiar stories, I think, from some new and exciting ways.
1: Yeah, and it's it's not just, again, we, we go back over again, it's not just, you know, um, the gospel according to marvel or like a book that says hey i'm just gonna kind of lay some scripture over some themes that are happening in the movies there there's a richness and a depth that has to go to not that there's that's not as its place in terms of how we grow or, or reflect on kind of the, a faith or devotional life and those kinds of things or, or breathing life into scripture but i think there's a depth and richness here that, that is pretty pretty deep and, and i'll make the plug too as a parish pastor um, who's been a seminary. I'm, I don't have a doctorate in theology, but I've dabbled into some theology. this this book is is deep and rich, but um, it's not just for the academic setting. I think parish pastors, youth pastors, campus pastors um, or, or just leaders within uh, community groups or or counselors leading leading youth or young adults that it, it opens up a new world that adds a depth to what everyone collectively I mean our society, lacks a big grand meta narrative that we can all rally behind well here we go we have marvel universe everybody's talking about um and and so how can we go deeper in some of those conversations so it's it's there i mean you may have to look if you're like me you may have to look up a few words here and there circle a word and then go hunt it down and and find the definition but again that's how you grow and learn too uh so i was enriched by by this book That
0: that was one of the great pleasures of the book for me. Like I said, like this to me is like an entryway into this, not just one, but um, multiple like uh, universes, if you will, of uh, (laughs) theological thought and conversation. And uh, for me, that was one of the great pleasures of the book is the works cited lists in them uh, for for if nothing else and the Mm -hmm. little primers that um, each essay um, kind of just. Uh, provides, because I know these stories or most of the stories I knew, um, I, I was able to understand the concepts um, in, in such a way. Uh, it's like the, uh, the story of Schrodinger's cat makes the math of Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> it makes sense, right? Uh, the Schrodinger's paradox makes sense. And, and in, in a lot of ways, the same kind of um, process happened here for me.
2: Yeah. And I would even add, you know, as the editor of this book, um, you know, I learned a lot of new things myself, not just about these Marvel stories, but I even learned, you know, some new things about different theological approaches and uh, different aspects of those. So, yeah, uh, it, you know, I think it's can be very beneficial to pretty much anyone.
0: Yeah. And so I think there's a lot. I mean, I've already answered the question here, how non-seminary Christians can find some value in this. But would you have any thoughts on how, like, sort of general comic fans? I feel like anybody who just likes these stories will also find this book really interesting. And and you might have, do you have any thoughts on, on that, on how someone who just goes to the comic shop and and loves to consume these stories might also like this book?
2: Yeah. Again, because, you know, you know, this book, yes, it does take us into some sort of deeper theological discussions, but, you know, through those theological discussions, the primary thing that one of the main things that it does is it helps us to see these stories on a deeper level. Uh, And, think about different ways that these stories function and see some new things in these stories that uh, we hadn't noticed before. Um, And so even for just the comic book fan who has no interest in theology or no grounding in theology, you know, this is a book I think that in these essays will help them understand those stories and even appreciate those stories uh, on a deeper level.
1: Yeah. If you go to a comic shop, you know, say, say you see the movies and you've never bought a comic book. I encourage you to go to a comic store and the people who work there will can't wait to say, well, what what's a character you gravitate towards? You can name any character in the Marvel universe, DC universe, any kind of, and they'll say, okay, here's a good jumping on point hop on here. And yeah, some of these stories can be intimidating because it's been going on for 80 plus years, 50 years. Where do I jump in? How do I get involved? What's my jumping on point? And they, these, um, the local comic book shop can f- help you find those those things and then once you find and gravitate towards a character or read some of those stories this book pretty much has uh all the characters there that you can then go find that essay that talks about that particular movie or a character that that you find yourself a fan of yeah, yeah. Had,
0: go ahead greg
2: i was gonna say yeah i mean there's just so much out there uh, both comics and film and television that's Uh, so valuable in exploring I just wish we were able to do more in this book than we were able
0: to yeah Yeah. volume two uh, should be coming yeah volume two but for now um, like we said you can pick up volume one uh, (laughs) well the the volume uh, Theology in the Marvel Universe edited by Greg Stevenson uh, Gregory Stevenson um, is how it's on the cover and uh, that's available basically anywhere you can find books um, and you can go to the Rutledge website too every now and then there's discount codes if you follow uh, pop culture and theology on like Twitter and stuff um, every once in a while Matt Brake will put out a discount code that he, um, the publisher provides and things like that um, Gregory um, how can folks uh, follow you and, and follow your work
2: um, well um, I mean you can, you, know, you can find information about me on the, the Rochester University website um, I'm on Facebook there's another good place I'm on Twitter but not terribly active on there uh, but Facebook or going to the Rochester university website is, is a good way to connect. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, even just searching on Amazon, I have a number of books out there, some on, on the, on the book of revelation, but a lot of things on, on popular culture, uh, a number of things uh, upcoming. I'm right. I'm actually co-editing a book uh, with Brandon Graffius on a bird box uh, mm. that should be coming out earlier this year. And I just did an essay on Stephen King's it uh, and I'll even say I'm actually a uh, You know, we got this Theology in the Marvel Universe book. There's uh, uh, also a Theology in the DC Universe book uh, that's in process that I'm writing a chapter for in that. So kind of being Mm -hmm. ecumenical here and not just sticking with the Marvel (laughs) side a little bit as well. Can
1: you reveal what chapter you're writing in that book? Is that uh, top Uh, secret on down low?
2: With my interest in in Revelation and Apocalyptic, uh, I'm I'm, uh, doing a chapter on the apocalyptic theology of Kingdom Come.
1: Oh, um, beautiful. Yeah.
2: Series from the mid-90s. Yeah, fun to work on that.
0: Yeah, that's great. great. Uh, in terms of DC, I've actually been reading Justice League Dark, uh, and I, I really find that title fascinating, and and I love it. And um, and I'm very upset about coronavirus because it's disrupted my, <laughs> my storylines uh, for among other things, right? But um, that's one, right, yeah. one another <laughs> negative uh, aspect of this whole uh, pandemic is that um, the comic shops are just now starting to trickle in uh, with with content that um, we've been uh, missing for so long here. So. Uh, well, Gregor Stevenson, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Thanks for editing the book and thanks for taking the time uh, to come uh, talk about it. Um, Will, thanks for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate yeah. having you here and, and all of your knowledge to, to back me up on this. Uh, this is really great talking to both of you. Um, for those of you listening, I really uh, encourage you to go out and try and find a copy of Theology in the Marvel Universe. And like I said, if you work at a, in an academic institution, uh, try to encourage your library um, to stock this, particularly if you work at a religious college, because I I feel like um, lots of students um, will find lots of benefit in having this as a kind of entryway into very complex theological um, concepts. And I think people who uh, might not be interested in theology might get there uh, because they're already interested in, in this, kind, this form of pop culture. So uh, for Gregory Stevenson and Will Rose, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast blah, blah, blah. And then we'll, we'll get out there. So, um, that was awesome guys. Thanks so much. This yeah. was so much fun.
1: Oh, no, thank you for asking me.
0: Oh no. Any, anytime
1: for your first podcast, man, you nailed it. Yeah. Aaron natural. Yeah. Air natural. You,
0: you should do your own. Um, it was, <laughs> you were really, really good. Um, if you ever want to, uh, come back and plug anything else, let me know. You're, you got an open, uh, open invitation. Both of you guys.
1: All right, well, thank you. Yeah, and, and Kingdom Come was that first when we um, said, "Hey, we're going to do a God Lives Geeks book club. What should we start with our first reading?" I mean, that was just in the okay. Uh, here we Big religious themes, big the big heroes everybody knows about. That was our kind of inaugural uh, graphic novel that we dove into, and and every now and then we'll dig it back up and read it as a group. So it's uh it's, it's pretty timeless and, and and good. So yeah, I look forward to seeing that for sure. Yeah. Bye. I, I did a show
0: once um, about the Alan Moore book Miracle Man, um, and, and it also has, like, lots of, like, profound – not only kind of, like, political, but, like, theological um, – geez, just, like, consequences to the, to what he did with that character. It was, like, really, really interesting. Yeah. So. No end in sight. So thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, this yeah, um, Just to let you know, Greg, um, I'll send you an email with the link when it comes out. But um, okay. this should come out um, next Thursday. Um, okay. I, my, my shows drop on Thursday. And I want to get this one out. I have a couple other in the hopper, but I'm going to push this to the front um, because it's a little more timely. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, so I'll send you a link when it's out. But it sounds good. Thanks. Okay, sounds great.
1: Thanks, great. Y'all. See and you see guys. You All right. Thanks.